Mark Angelay is an industry leader in psychotherapy and men's mental health. He's helped countless guys get back on their feet, deepen their relationships, and excel in their lives. Now he's taken all that he has learned and is sharing it with you. In each episode, Mark will interview an expert in the field of masculinity and men's work. We'll cover topics such as emotional intelligence, masculine identity, anger management, financial health, trauma recovery, marriage and divorce, ethics, and spirituality. Tune in and become a better man. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay, and I'm here with Stephen Leshk, MD. He's a psychiatrist uh, that works out of Minneapolis, and he works with schizophrenic patients. I'm really excited um, to talk to you, Stephen, because I, you know, I'm a therapist, but I don't typically work with that level of acuity and that level of mental health. And you have an incredible new theory that's coming out in your book um, called The Footprints of Schizophrenia um, and Evolutionary Roots of Mental Illness that I'm excited just to, to learn about because my my program didn't really cover uh, clinical mental health in that way. So, Dr. Lesh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I'd be happy to expound on my theory uh, in detail, which I enjoy doing quite a bit. Great, yeah. So before we dive into the theory itself, let the listeners know a little bit about yourself. Like, how did you get into this? How do you start to develop this theory? What's your education? Um, who are you? Well, I would say I've always been interested in how the mind works and what, what makes us tick. I did a bachelor's in uh, psychology at Clark University, which is the only place that Freud actually spoke uh, when he came to America. I got a master's degree, a medical degree, and then I did um, you know, a typical rotating medical internship before I ended up in psychiatry and did a residency. I was a chief resident at uh, Nassau County Medical Center on Long Island. But um, what always uh, disturbed me about psychiatry, and as I said, before you go into psychiatry, you do a rotating internship, you do dermatology, surgery, uh, you know, gastroenterology. When I got into psychiatry, I noticed that patients would be diagnosed, let's say, with schizophrenia. Their family would come in and say to the attending psychiatrist, well, what is schizophrenia? And all I heard was catchphrases like uh, chemical imbalance, uh, genetics, it's, it's connectivity. I was never satisfied with that. And uh, I kept, you know, working. I did many things. I was chairman of the department at the Brooklyn VA. I worked at state hospitals for many years. I had my own private practice in Minneapolis. Um, now I've been working for a, a company in an outpatient clinic. but. Maybe 10 years ago, I decided, you know, being the dyed in the wool nerd that I am, who better to come up with a uh, better theory for schizophrenia than myself? So I started broadening my knowledge base. I read some anthropology. I read some uh, Darwinian evolution, language theory, read some books on language theory, developmental psychology. And Clark University is very strong in that also. I had. Heinz Werner there at one time. And I started to put together a theory that after a certain point, I thought I, I really had something here. And I would read articles and say to myself, you know, my theory explains that. Um, so I would write letters and articles and things like that. It didn't seem like the scientific community was terribly interested. And at some point I realized if I'm going to get this out there, I'm going to have to write a book for popular consumption, 
that uh, people will be able to pick up and, and uh, examine. So I worked for several years writing it, and it took several more to find an agent and to get it published. But here it is, and it embodies my entire theory, which I think is an advance. I think it's a game changer. And I think if we can uh, get people to look at it, uh, it'll change a, a lot about uh, what our research direction is and reduce stigma for schizophrenia. I mean, there has been no real comprehensive theory of schizophrenia ever. It's been a centuries-old mystery. Now, if we have a theory that makes sense, people will stop, you know, coming up with their own theories like uh, possession by the devil and, uh, you know, internal uh, DNA, uh, internal LSD uh, creator or that it's something contagious or things like that. So I'm hoping that my book and theory will have an impact globally on the understanding of schizophrenia, research directions, and to reduce stigma. And that would be very satisfying to me overall. Yeah, I, I think that that's a great story. And I love that you are kind of taking it upon yourself, right, to like get it out there, see, like test it right in the marketplace of ideas and see if it's useful for people. Um, and yeah, like you said, you have, you know, over 40 years of experience of working with patients like this. So, so you know what you're talking about. You know, I guess to have a ton of questions, but to start, I think for our, our listeners, can you define what like the life of a schizophrenic patient looks like? Because I think we have a lot of stereotypes from movies and, and media of what that is. But I'm curious, like in a day-to-day -day lived experience, what is schizophrenia like for somebody? Well, imagine yourself, uh, you know, going through high school. Things are going all right. You have a circle of friends. You're academically okay. And around the end of high school, maybe 15, 16, 17, 18, everyone starts treating you differently. They look at you like you're saying strange things. And to you, you know, you're the same person with the same thought process. But everyone else notices that you're starting to say unusual things, like uh, you say there are voices coming out of the vents, or you feel that the, all the food is poisoned, or that satellites are tracking you, the FBI is following you. You stop uh, paying attention as much to your appearance, you kind of uh, forsake your friends and, and become isolated. And that's kind of a, an initial trajectory of schizophrenia, which is a chronic mental illness. It doesn't go away. And once you get the diagnosis, usually your functional expectations go down. So a lot of schizophrenics will live in group homes. They'll be given their you know, meals and medications. Um, Many of them will not marry or reproduce. Uh, some will hold jobs. Some will not hold jobs. And if they do, it tends to be fairly menial. But there is a group of what we call high-functioning schizophrenics. Uh, and, of course, if you saw the movie Beautiful Mind, Jonathan Nash, mm -hmm. the Nobel Prize was clearly schizophrenic. If you read the iconic book, uh, The Center Cannot Hold by Ellen Sachs, she went to Oxford and Yale all the time having repeated psychotic breakdowns. Uh, Weijin Wang wrote a book recently, The Collected Schizophrenia, that was on the bestseller list for months. Um, Bethany Eiser, who went to college. So there's a group of high-functioning schizophrenics. Schizophrenics can be in all walks of life, but on average, their expectations functionally are 
are reduced. Yeah, and I, I I think it's it's important to underline, and I think it's it's scary for a lot of people that it doesn't really manifest until puberty or even young adulthood, right in the early twenties. So it's very my understanding is that's very hard to diagnose until it's it hits, you know, until you're in it. Is that correct? Yeah, there may be some warning signs, uh, like some kids will say they're hearing voices, uh, or there may be certain eccentricities, you know, of thought or. Changes in beliefs, uh, suddenly uh, you become obsessed with a certain uh, singer or a cult or something. But it is hard to, to uh, guess whether someone's going to become schizophrenic or not. There's a movement afoot to define what they call ultra-high-risk uh, for psychosis patients. And uh, they're working on that, but it's not at the point where we could say, you know, uh, so-and-so can be medicated even before they're showing signs of schizophrenia. The ultimate goal would be to medicate them before it sets in. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet. And of course, you, you don't take a medication lightly. You don't just give it to someone who you're not sure is going to need it. But um, once it sets into full-blown schizophrenia around the end of high school, early college, it becomes pretty clear, generally. Yeah. Yeah, so before we talk about your theory, you mentioned some of the previous theories. And and what you're saying, I agree with that. I think it's like not well defined. And I, a lot of psychiatrists and psychotherapists certainly like we kind of throw up our hands at it being like, I don't, I don't know, right? I don't understand this. It's weird. But it's been interpreted, like you said, as you know, demonic possession. I think some cultures it's almost like a shamanistic witch doctor thing, like they're tapped into something more true than reality. Right, I think for like in common media, it's like oh, they're crazy and maybe even violent. I think that's linked a lot in media where it's like they're serial killers or they're sociopaths or something, right? Um, and then yeah, stuff like chemical balance, which doesn't really mean anything because if you can't define what chemicals are imbalanced, it doesn't help, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, if you can speak a little bit to that of what the current state of understanding is, because it it seems like maybe the least understood one out there um, from what I'm thinking. I would say so. Uh, I mean, we know it involves dopamine. We know that every medication we use to fix it blocks dopamine. Uh, but that's kind of our level of understanding. So you find uh, we find ourselves as psychiatrists sitting in offices, talking to patients who don't understand that they're ill, using medications that we don't fully understand, treating an illness we don't fully understand. Mm. And it's very uh, frustrating. And of course, I have made the statement that uh, psychiatry is sort of in the dark ages. Uh, you know, if you go to another specialist, you sit down, you tell them your symptoms, they examine you, they run some tests, and they say, well, you've got, you know, diabetes, or you've got heart disease, or high blood pressure. Psychiatrists have not one single blood test or x-ray that can give you uh, a diagnosis. So we rely on what it is the patient tells us maybe sometimes what the families tell us and their history of treatment and things like that to piece together the best diagnosis we can. And of course, sometimes there are multiple diagnoses and then we struggle to find the right medication or group of medications. Uh, and of course, our medications really aren't where they should be. A medication that helps one will not help the other. So we're, we're kind of in the dark ages and I'm hoping that my theory will advance us at least to uh, parity with the other specialties. 
versions. There's something like something to grab onto, right? Because I know so much of psychiatry is trial and error, right? It's going through kind of the most popular drugs, the le- lowest risk, and then escalating. And for, you know, some of my clients that are, you know, that take medication, it can be months, if not years, until their, you know, specific cocktail gets figured out. Right. And uh, we don't have any reliable information on uh, what algorithm to use. Mm-hmm. So obviously, if you've diagnosed depression, you're going to start with an antidepressant. If you've diagnosed schizophrenia, you're going to use an antipsychotic. But aside from that, it's basically trial and error. And I don't want to give the wrong impression. We help a lot of people. But, you know, it, it shouldn't take as long as it does. Our medication should be better with fewer side effects, mm-hmm. more reliable across the board. Yeah, yeah. So let's move into your theory. So if you could give, you know, give us like the headline first, right? Like, like what does your theory do that's different? And then we can dig into the details um, as we keep moving forward here. Essentially, what my theory says is that schizophrenia and mental illness in general is a result of recent changes in evolution brought about by language. Uh, What they call hominins, or human-like animals, have been around for millions of years, uh, six, seven million years. Language has only been around for 50,000. And I like to use the analogy, if you take three yardsticks, each one... representing 2 million years, so that's 6 million. Language has been around for less than the last inch. And it totally revolutionized the way we use our brains. So you have something incredibly new, incredibly different in how we use our brains. And at this moment in evolutionary time, not everyone's on board with it. We're still in this transitional phase. And those that are least on board with it, we call mentally ill. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that I'm curious. Yeah. There's, there's a lot there. Um, I guess the question that comes to mind is, do you think animals could have mental illness? Because I know some people say like their dogs have anxiety, right? Or the cat's depressed or there's some level there, right? Is that just projection or anthropomorphization or is that just, is there anything to that? Or is it language is dependent to have a, a mental illness? Yeah. According to my theory, uh, if you don't have language, no mental illness, which also means that cavemen had no mental illness. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were so busy scraping out an existence, trying to survive, hunter-gathering. Um, didn't have time for mental illness. You know, there was no question about suicide. They were just lucky to survive day to day. We weren't even at the top of the food chain. Once we got language, uh, by 10,000 B.C., Homo sapiens had wiped out all the other species of homo. We fanned out across the globe, and now we own the world. So language literally transformed our existence as homo sapiens. And we were better at it than any of the other uh, species of homo, like Neanderthals. They probably had primitive language, but their voice box uh, was not capable of anywhere near the number of sounds that ours is. Their brains were actually bigger than ours, but they couldn't do the language thing the way we do. Homo sapiens have a real talent for symbol formation and language, and that propelled us uh, to uh, owning the world. I like to say we went from the jungle to the disco, <laughs> and it happened really fast. 
Yeah, 100%, right? Because, you know, when I think about what language gives us, it gives us the ability to record history, right, and transmit knowledge across generations. It gives us the ability to, you know, use strategy and tactics, right, to communicate in, you know, a survival situation and to plan ahead of time. It gives us the ability to talk about the future and the past to actually bring time into our perception. I mean, there's a lot that I imagine happens when you're able to, you know, yeah, symbolically communicate your internal state. It moves you out of that survival mentality. Well, for the first time, we could participate in our own thought process. Prior yeah. to that, we, we couldn't. Our minds were on total autopilot. Now we can use conscious thought and we can reason and decide for ourselves if what we're doing is in our best interest or not. And all of this is involved with dopamine and the suppression of dopamine, which I think goes along with uh, the acquisition of language. Yeah. Okay. So as, as we're moving towards our commercial break here, I'm curious if possible, would you be able to define what you mean by mental illness then in using this model? Like, how do these two interplay? Well, I, uh, you know, go along with the standard uh, DSM-5 diagnoses. You know, we have the major mental illnesses of schizophrenia, major depression, bipolar, anxiety disorder, OCD. We have autism. We have PTSD. All of these are within the rubric of mental illness. But according to my theory, they all happen because of this recent change from uh, pre-linguistic to post-linguistic uh, mentality, and that when people become mentally ill, there's a regression back toward the pre-linguistic uh, state of mind. And for schizophrenics, they go all the way back to uh, pre-language, -pre prehistoric uh, mentality. Yeah, I mean, that's starting to make sense to me, right? I, the, the meaning I'm making is, if you have language, like you said, you can introduce things like doubt, right? Or you can introduce things like anxiety or confidence or self-esteem, like all these kind of reflective meta-consciousness is all language dependent. And, and I find that a lot of my clients that struggle with mental health, it's in that, right? It's in the how they perceive themselves or how they believe other people perceive them um, versus a more survival-based existence. Is that kind of what, what you're saying? Yes, and uh, language essentially gave birth to civilization. Yeah. Civilization, you know, required that people could get along and have a social strategy, and it also uh, required morality and a superego, you know, the golden rule. So all of this, you know, language begat all of these things and the institutions of, you know, higher learning, education, jurisprudence, you know, uh, all of that uh, was a uh, child, I think, of language and conscious thought. Mm -hmm. And even more than that, you know, you can view language as a means of communication, description, etc. But it also is a means of defying entropy. And I go into that in my next book. Great. Well, we're going to move to our first commercial break. When we get back, we'll dig more into the details of the theory. Um, so if you're listening out there and you're struggling with mental illness or you have a family member or a loved one, you're going to want to hang on and hear uh, what Dr. Lesh has to say. So we'll see you on the other side of the commercial break. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Men's Therapy Online is now accepting new members. 
Men's Therapy Online offers a solution to the lack of outlets for emotional expression, positive role models, and access to meaningful milestone experiences. In our post-COVID world, loneliness is at an all-time high. Men need consistent community. Our society is rapidly changing. Old models of masculinity are falling at the task of promoting emotional intelligence and meaningful connection. Men's Therapy Online offers tools and experiences designed to help the man who is struggling to balance traditional male roles and emotional fluidity. Whether you need to get back on your feet or take your life to the next level, Men's Therapy Online has your back. We help our members become a true 21st century man. A man who is not burdened by the rapid change of society, but who contributes to it honorably. If you're interested in signing up and finding your band of brothers, go to menstherapy.online to learn more. That's menstherapy.online. Start your journey today. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to the Men's Therapy Podcast with Mark Azalay. To reach the show today, please call 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Or send an email to podcast at menstherapy.online or visit www.menstherapypodcast.com. Now, back to the Men's Therapy Podcast. Welcome back to the show. I'm here with Dr. Stephen Leshk, and he's the author of a book called Footprints of Schizophrenia, Evolutionary Roots of Mental Illness. And we're talking about just that, the evolutionary roots. So um, if you're listening, we did have a little bit of technical difficulty at the end of our last segment when Dr. Lesh was talking about the connection between language uh, and entropy. So I want to give you a chance to, to communicate that again to our listeners, um, what that point was there. Okay, well, um, you know, as we learn language, our minds uh, go from a more chaotic, disorganized state to one of much greater organization and coherence. You know, we uh, follow the developmental trajectory of differentiation of parts, uh, integration, and hierarchical structuring of parts. So our brains become much more complicated and uh, structured. Now, entropy is the second law of thermodynamics. And the classic example of entropy is if you put a steaming cup of coffee down on the table, come back 20 minutes later, it's lukewarm because the heat has dissipated uh, into the surrounding environment due to entropy. Um, entropy seeks to keep everything in the lowest state of organization, the lowest state of energy possible. So you could say, and I said this in my book, that the brain of a homo sapiens is the most entropic and anti-entropy, the most entropic substance in the universe. We've achieved such a high level of organization and energy. But when people regress uh, with mental illness, not only do they go back to a prehistoric state of mind that we had for millions of years, and certainly millions of years has the uh, momentum over 50,000, but they also gratify entropy, which is kind of lurking in the background of all of this. And there's a tre tremendous uh, release of energy. And uh, at that point, uh, people are stuck in that primitive state of mind, at least with schizophrenia. But some of the other mental illnesses are cyclical. They'll come and go, 
and have uh, you know normal periods in between. Not so with schizophrenia, and I think the reason is that uh, it gratifies entropy to such a great extent that you're stuck there, you're frozen, you can't get out of it. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious with schizophrenia. Do you believe that? It's purely biological, or is there a genetic component, or is there a trauma component? Like, what what makes the mind move towards that more primitive state? What's the trigger or the stimulus? Well, my theory is that it's primarily an evolutionary glitch, and mm-hmm. it has to do with this moment in evolution that we're in. That doesn't mean that uh, genetics or environmental influences don't increase your vulnerability to it. We know that a lot of environmental issues do increase your vulnerability Uh, if you're born in winter months if you have an elderly parent if you have an urban upbringing as opposed to rural head trauma you know abusive parents these increase your risk and genetically there's an increase as well if you have a first degree relative with schizophrenia your, your risk goes up but i don't think we're ever going to find a schizophrenia gene We've been looking for decades. We haven't found it. We never will. Uh, Two people with the exact same genetics, identical twins, if one of them has schizophrenia, you would think that if this is a genetic illness, 100% of the time, the other one. But it's less than 50%. The other thing is that, you know, Darwin made it clear that any mutation that reduces your functionality and your reproductive rate is going to go extinct relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Schizophrenia shows no signs of going extinct at all. So I don't think it's primarily genetic. I think genes and environment can shift the vulnerability, but I think it's basically just an evolutionary glitch that we're in, and 1% of the population is going to be schizophrenic across the board. That's across all uh, geopolitical, ethnic, and socioeconomic boundaries which is not typical of genetics. If you look at a disease like sickle uh, cell anemia, it tends to uh, center in black people, or Tay-Sachs uh, centers uh, with Ashkenazi Jews. Schizophrenia is, uh, you know, all across the board, 1% everywhere you go. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I didn't know that, that it, it just it's just almost constant in that way. Yeah. So you, you mentioned the role of dopamine. You know, and I think you know, to catch your listeners up, if you're not familiar, dopamine, the way I think of it is it's kind of the reward chemical in the brain. It's the feeling of, hey, job well done, mission accomplished, I got something, right? It can feel like a click or something, like kind of something clicking into place. Um, and it's, you know, the center of so many brain functions. Uh, but I'm curious, Dr. Lesh, how do you see dopamine playing a role here in schizophrenia? Well, I think uh, once we got language, our whole relationship with dopamine changed. And uh, dopamine uh, was used by evolution, in essence, to try to reward behaviors that were uh, evolutionarily um, positive. Evolution can't rule on anything but mutations. Uh, If you have a certain mutation that improves your ability to survive and procreate, it succeeds. If it reduces your ability to survive and procreate, it goes extinct. But evolution can't rule on day-to-day behavior. Whether your caveman leaves his cave 
and searches for berries or tries to kill an animal or hunt a mate, uh, it has no uh, sway there. So dopamine was used as a reward mechanism, kind of a Pavlovian reward. And anything that the caveman would do to further his survival and reproduction was rewarded with this dollop of dopamine, an internal chemical feel-good process. Now, once we got language, you know, we, we gained conscious thought, and we could decide for ourselves what was evolutionarily uh, favorable or, or disadvantageous. So we didn't really need that. Well, you know, dopamine still works that way. And we were able to suppress dopamine in certain tracks that we could never suppress it before. I think all of us, and, and cavemen as well, suppress dopamine in the nigrostriatal tract. That's a motor tract that involves dopamine. And as we learn, you know, coordinated movements, we suppress dopamine to bring it into into alignment with its partner, acetylcholine. So there's a gradual process of um, becoming more fluent in our movements. Uh, We love to do uh, things as kids, bounce balls, hit with sticks, uh, you know, throw things. And we gradually learn coordinated movement by suppressing dopamine. Once we got language, we could use the same suppressive um, trait in these other tracks, mesolimbic and mesocortical. And that is what gave us the big advantage. And I've made a statement in my book that the suppression of dopamine might be the greatest accomplishment of Homo sapiens uh, wherever uh, they are. Because um, no other species could do that. And because we did it, when we suppress dopamine, our egos are strengthened and our ability to gate out unwanted thoughts and uh, intrusions into our mind is strengthened. We also, uh, the mind expands. The left side of the mind expands uh, for right-handers to accommodate language. We secrete chemicals like BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, VEGF, that literally expand our brains and uh, we complexify. So the basic um, issue with language is a suppression of dopamine. And for most of us, that works very well, for 80% of us. But for those that are subject to, vulnerable to, desuppression of dopamine, that can result in mental illness. And my theory states that every mental illness involves some form of desuppression of dopamine. That's really fascinating. That's really fascinating because I'm hearing, and please correct me if I'm wrong because I'm just following along here. What I'm hearing is because Homo sapiens, because humans were able to suppress dopamine, we can kind of direct our evolution in a way, right? We can prioritize things. We can focus on things that might not be immediately survival, right? But they can give us a leg up, whether that be intellectual pursuits or philosophy or history or politics, whatever, art, right? Like we can just like channel it into something beyond just the animal, but what I hear you saying is people that have significant mental illness, they're not able to really do that. And they exist in a more primitive state or a more survivalist state. Am I following along correctly? Well, they do. It's, uh, you know, like schizophrenics. They will uh, learn language well. They will go along through high school doing pretty well. Um, but at some point, it all falls apart and they regress back to the type of mentality we had prior to language that what I call the primitive organization, 
And that's where all the trouble begins. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the same is true for the other mental illnesses, maybe on a lesser scale, that they involve desuppression of dopamine. Now, desuppression of dopamine happens in other situations. So, for example, if you take some uh, psilocybin, you're going to see a desuppression of dopamine. Uh, your ego is going to shred, and you're going to be subject to all kinds of hallucinatory phenomena, etc. Children uh, aren't suppressing dopamine the way adults do, and their thinking is clearly different from adults. Mm -hmm. you know, a child will say, uh, the moon is a big fat man who will eat you. And you just kind of pat them on the head and say, well, that's cute. But they gradually learn you know, realistic thinking by suppressing dopamine. We all use this primitive organization in sleep. When we're sleeping, uh, our dreams reflect this primitive kind of thinking that really doesn't make sense mm -hmm. to the waking mind, the reality testing mind. So what we've done is, in suppressing dopamine, gaining language, we've adopted what Freud called the reality principle. We're able to gate out unwanted impulses and thoughts. We're able to expand our mind, and uh, everything flowed from that. And the mind is kind of like a muscle. The more you use it, the more it expands. The less you use it, the more it's subject to atrophy. Mm -hmm. So... This might be oversimplification, but are you saying that the schizophrenic state is is more how primitive man lived? Like, were we living in a world that had more hallucinations or more of these almost psychedelic experiences before we evolved into Homo sapien? No, I think that uh, without language, this doesn't happen. Um, okay. Okay. They, they live, you know, we were like animals. I mean, we weren't even at the top of the food chain. Uh, we just scraped by an existence, you know, intuitively as best we could, and our brains were on autopilot. Now, once you get language, you know, you do suppress dopamine, and all of these changes take place, and it's the loss of that when they regress back to that six million year old mind that causes all the problems. They can still talk, but their thought process is childlike, and children use different rules of thinking than we do. So they're caught back in a more primitive mode of thought that they can still talk and express things. And I also yeah. have a theory about hallucinations, why they suffer from those. Yeah, so so it sounds like yeah the, the the software kind of goes back, but the hardware is still more advanced, right? There still has the language centers, you still have a full cortex. So there's this glitching, right, that you're talking about where it doesn't quite line up. In fact, I use the analogy, it's like putting a uh, a uh, software program from the nineteen eighties into a new, uh, you know, MacBook Pro. Uh, some things are going to work. Mm -hmm. A few things will not work at all, and some will kind of sputter along. You have a totally different operating system uh, within the same machinery, and it's just very problematic. You know, when people see it uh, in the way schizophrenics talk, but they are not aware of it. And, you know, this term anisognosia, schizophrenics are truly not aware that they have an illness. They just uh, suddenly notice that people are treating them differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's wild. Um, so yeah, you talked about the hallucinations and a theory about that. Can you go into that a little bit more? Well, what happens is uh, uh, there's an illness called um, Charles Bonnet syndrome. Uh, that as we get older, people who have no mental illness 
but they lose their uh, uh, sight and uh, hearing, start to hallucinate. And the reason for that is that the you know, executive center of the brain needs that input. Like I said, without sensory input, there's a strong likelihood of atrophy. So the brain creates its own input, essentially, by hallucinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can treat that. We, I have several patients with that Charles Binet syndrome. And the same thing happens um, at night when we're sleeping. There's sensory deprivation. There's no noise input. There's no um, visual input. We're in a dark room in a comfortable bed. And the uh, executive center of the mind is left deprived and therefore elicits dreams uh, that come about. Same thing with schizophrenia. When they shift from the adult uh, type of organization to this primitive organization, it leaves the uh, adult organization, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, uh, centrally deprived, and it therefore elicits these hallucinations uh, to try to avoid atrophy. And we know that atrophy is a fairly common uh, happening in schizophrenia. It happens fairly often. Yeah, that that is really cool. So it does the brain's trying to survive, right, by creating these hallucinations so it can continue to function um and not yeah, not just atrophy away. So we're gonna move to our next commercial break. When we get back, I wanna talk specifically with some action steps of how somebody could support an individual with schizophrenia or how they might get involved in research or or in um charity work. Cause I think this is a it's a horrible problem you know i mean it, it just sounds like a, a really difficult existence um so i'm sure you have some resources that you can share so if you're listening hang on in there and we'll see you on the other side voice america is on linkedin connect with us today men's therapy online is now accepting new members Men's Therapy Online offers a solution to the lack of outlets for emotional expression, positive role models, and access to meaningful milestone experiences. In our post-COVID world, loneliness is at an all-time high. Men need consistent community. Our society is rapidly changing. Old models of masculinity are falling at the task of promoting emotional intelligence and meaningful connection. Men's Therapy Online offers tools and experiences designed to help the man who is struggling to balance traditional male roles and emotional fluidity. Whether you need to get back on your feet or take your life to the next level, Men's Therapy Online has your back. We help our members become a true 21st century man, a man who is not burdened by the rapid change of society, but who contributes to it honorably. If you're interested in signing up and finding your band of brothers, go to menstherapy.online to learn more. That's menstherapy.online. Start your journey today. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to the Men's Therapy Podcast with Mark Azalay. To reach the show today, please call 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Or send an email to podcast at menstherapy.online or visit www.menstherapypodcast.com. Now, back to the Men's Therapy Podcast. 
Welcome back to the show. In this segment, we try to talk about action steps. So there's something that our listeners can take away um, with all the information and theory presented here. So Dr. Lesh, how can somebody, I guess, notice schizophrenia in their family? Maybe it's a good place to start and, and try to get help as early as possible. Well, I mean, certain things uh, are pretty common, schizophrenics. Uh, children who hear voices should probably be brought to a psychiatrist. There are children who hear voices that remain normal, but that's kind of a warning sign that something bad might be going on. Other eccentric beliefs, changes in how they view the world, things like that can be of concern. And it's certainly uh, concerning if someone starts talking about demons and uh, feeling like they're possessed or that they see ghosts or things like that. So whenever you hear things that are like that, especially voices, don't hesitate to take your child to a psychiatrist just for an evaluation. And uh, It's always better to err on the side of caution than to ignore these things. Yeah, I know you also want to talk about medication, and I think that's critical here, right? I mean, so me as a psychotherapist, for our listeners, a psychotherapist just does talk therapy. We're not able to prescribe, and we're not very effective in working with severe clinical mental health such as this because there is a biological component. Um, so I am going to kick it over to the psychiatrist on the call here to talk about medical intervention uh, that can help with these types of things. Well, first of all, um, you know, every medication we use for schizophrenia and even for depression, suppresses dopamine. And that, you know, kind of backs up my theory that mental illness is a desuppression, a surge of dopamine. But these uh, medications, if we're talking about the antipsychotics, they literally block the dopamine receptor, and the newer ones also block serotonin 2A receptors, which are involved in psychedelics. And the, the goal is to block anywhere from 60 to 85% of the dopamine receptors. And this restores the balance for the schizophrenic toward the more adult organization and away from the primitive organization. Or at least it sets a limit on it. But it doesn't do everything. And it is helpful if schizophrenics can continue to take courses, read things. It's called cognitive restructuring. That can help promote the march back to adult thinking, um, but it's not for everyone, not every schizophrenic can do it. But we have antipsychotic medication, and once the diagnosis of schizophrenia is made, the person will have to be on one the rest of their life. There's no uh, real debate about that. The unfortunate news is that they have lots of side effects. You don't know which one is going to work for which particular individual, and some that work for one that will not work well for another. We can't predict what side effects someone's going to get. So they're very imperfect, and I'm hoping that with my theory, things will advance to the point where we can come up with better medications, more focused medications uh, that work better for, for almost everyone. Yeah, so you, you mentioned psychedelics in there, right? And that is the current wave um, in psychotherapy and, and psych, psychiatry. Um, I've had psychedelic experiences, and I've had hallucinations, right? I haven't heard voices per se, but my I've noticed the quality of my thought has changed, and sometimes my thoughts are either louder or, or not existent, um, that kind of ego death uh, experience. 
But I'm curious, yeah, what role do psychedelics play in this ongoing research and theory? Because it seems like a way to to test, right? To kind of like twist the levers and, and flip the knobs and things, you know? Well, my, all the psychedelics work the same way. They stimulate serotonin 2A receptors. Now, we don't know what that does, but my theory is that that ushers in a massive surge of dopamine or desuppression of dopamine, just like the schizophrenic has, and your ego gets shredded, and you go back to this primitive organization where all the rules of thinking are changed, they're childlike, and that creates this sense of uh, being in a strange world, you know, strange psychedelic world. So what I think psychedelics do is, in essence, deconstruct the mind, and then as they leave your body, you get a chance to reconstruct it, kind of reconstruct your ego, maybe in, from a more advantageous point of view. The problem is, for some people, it's a less advantageous point of view, and they are really stuck in a bad situation for a long period of time. There was an article in the Journal of the American Psychiatric Association about a woman who decided to try psilocybin twice. Uh, she was a high-functioning person, went to a good college, uh, accountant. Suddenly she uh, lost interest in everything, quit her job, uh, dropped her friends, felt terribly depressed and paranoid, and they struggled to help her all kinds of medications and treatments, including transcranial magnetic stimulation. Finally, they were able to help her with medication that promoted dopamine because it seemed as if she had, in essence, burnt out her dopamine receptors. So there are risks, and I don't think it's a great idea to give a mentally ill person a chemical that deconstructs their mind. Yeah. And I'm in favor of that. Hopefully we can use it to learn more about how the mind works and create better chemicals that aren't as risky. But yeah, these- I just want to highlight the last thing you said, right? Because it's it's a the drum that I bang too, where I think psychedelic research is awesome, and I'm for it. And like I said, I've tried it personally. However, I do think doing it with a therapist or with a professional is critical, especially if you do struggle with mental health, because it is really unknown. Um, there can be significant risks around that because we don't know how it works, and you and you are a test case in a lot of ways. Um, so I think there could be an impulse, especially in Colorado, where a lot of stuff's becoming legal, to just do it on your own, you know, over a weekend, kind of casually. And I would strongly recommend, again, especially if you're struggling with mental health issues, um, to seek out a professional, at the very least, to consult you and help you set up and help you integrate your experience if they're not able to be there with you. So I just want to just put that PSA out there because it is it's important, I think, to to share that. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So, you know, as a, as we're kind of moving on here, you. You talked about you have a new book coming out that's focused on entropy, um, and you said a little bit about that early on. Can you say more about what might be in that second book? Well, I think entropy is going to be the uh, key concept of the 21st century. Um, entropy lurks behind lots of things, mental illness, physical illness, uh, social behavior, things like wars, murders, etc., it's kind of similar to what Freud called the death instinct. You know, we all have a part of us that um, somehow seeks, you know, disintegration, uh, disorientation. And uh, animals, of course, as opposed to plants, have to learn to be 
killers. They, they hunt down animals, kill them, and eat them. That's part of their uh, kind of entropic heritage that we all have. And humans have this also. But because we're in civilizations, we've had to curtail you know, our impulse toward murder and, of course, Freud's famous Oedipus complex where we want to murder the father and take over the mother for ourselves. So what happens is that entropy gets um, suppressed in a sense in civilization, but it finds a way to come out in other ways, like wars, genocides, mass murders. And I think we need to have much more awareness of that. And of course, it underlies all illness. You know, I, I use that classic example of the teacup that cools over 20 minutes. You could say that we're all teacups gradually cooling as we age. And you can see that we more or less deteriorate over time, which is an entropic uh, impulse. So entropy lurks behind a lot of things and mental illness because it has to do with that uh, mental organization versus disorganization. Entropy favors disorganization all the way. And we defied it with language when we uh, adopted this adult form of complex thinking. So it has many branches, many implications, and my book is going to explore them as much as possible to see what we can learn from it. And I think, you know, it may be helpful in terms of uh, looking at um, things like global warming, even mortality itself, that at some point we might be able to avoid mortality and become immortal if we can figure out how to best counteract entropy. If you look at something like a sequoia tree, some of those trees live for thousands of years. And what have they done? They've essentially defied entropy by lifting massive weights of wood against gravity and storing potential energy. Anytime you store potential energy, that goes against entropy. So these massive uh, sequoia trees have lived for thousands of years, and we may be able to learn from that something about uh, enlarging our mortality and uh, living longer and defying entropy better. But right now, the most a defined part of us uh, against entropy is our brain. Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. As we move towards the end here, I want to ask you a final question, which is, you know, gazing towards the future. You made a claim in your book that in the future, there'll be no more mental illness. I'm curious if you want to detail that um, as we wrap up. Well, you know, my theory is that mental illness is a result of the fact that we're in this evolutionary moment, a very recent transition that totally revolutionized our minds, and not everyone's on board with it yet. But as we go through time, maybe 5,000, 10,000 years, everyone will be on board. I think we'll be using our minds and mentality a lot more and our physicality a lot less, and we will not see the type of mental illness that we have now as defined. Great. Well, that's, that's really interesting. So if you're interested, listeners, in that, check out his book, uh, Footprints of Schizophrenia, Evolutionary Roots of Mental Illness. Um, so, Dr. Lesh, where can people learn more about you? Uh, I have a website, stephenleskmd.com, and they'll see uh, videos there, YouTube videos. There'll be a fairly in-depth explanation of my theories. Uh, but, of course, the most detailed explanation is in the book, Footprints of Schizophrenia 
can get it on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. <clears throat> but I'm hoping that I can really change the way people view mental illness to reduce stigma, redefine our research goals so that we do better in terms of the treatments we, we have to offer patients. You know, 1% of the population is schizophrenic. You don't read about it. You don't hear about it. Nobody talks about it. It's got to come out of the woodwork and into the uh, limelight a little better. And, and I think that way uh, people will be less afraid of it. Schizophrenics are not dangerous. Mm -hmm. Just wonderful people who have a different way of, of thought. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining. You know, if you're listening, check out the book. If you're a professional, if there's someone in your life that has schizophrenia, or if you're just interested in psychology and neuroscience and medicine in general, I think it's a great thing. And it's always good to hear different theories and to get on the ground floor of, of what might be the next wave of treatment um, and understanding. So um, be sure to check us out too. So if you like this podcast, uh, like it, share it, give us a five-star review, it really helps. If there's someone who you know who struggles with schizophrenia or is trying to make sense of their reality, share it with them. Um, it's great to get this information out there with as many people as possible. And check out my website at menstherapy.online where we offer individual counseling, men's group, retreats. Uh, we just actually launched a book club um, that's starting at the end of March. We're going to be reading through some masculinity books, the first one being Iron John by Robert Bly, which is a classic book on masculinity and masculine theory. So it's open to everybody, whether you're a client or not. It's not therapy. It's just a discussion group. It's a place to kind of play around with big ideas. Um, so check it out. Go to our website, menstherapy.online. Uh, so Dr. Lesh, thank you again for joining us on the show thank you so much for having me i'm really enjoying it and hope it helps yes and listeners thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next week another episode of the men's therapy podcast thank you for joining your host mark Agile on the men's therapy podcast be sure to tune in again live next wednesday at 2 p.m eastern time and 11 a.m pacific time on the voice america health and wellness channel and anywhere podcasts are found to support the show, leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information or to apply to be a guest, visit www.menstherapypodcast.com.